the Democratic presidential primary race is in full swing. As we come to the last quarter of 2019, there's been an immense amount of Sturm und Drang about who's up, who's down, who's leading in Iowa, who's leading in New Hampshire, and who is going to emerge as the real challenger to the frontrunner. But what if it's really not all that complicated? Most presidential primary elections aren't. In this week's episode, we'll dive into the history of some recent primary races, and we'll talk about some of the durable dynamics that shape democratic primary races in general. The conclusion, once we've had that discussion, is pretty obvious. Barring a major unforeseen circumstance, the likely nominee is still Joe Biden. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome back, podcast listeners to Blind Politics. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the Robertson School of Government here at Regent University in sunny Virginia Beach. As I'm recording this, it is October, and it actually is still fairly beautiful weather here in Virginia Beach, as it tends to be. And as I'm recording this, political circumstances seem to have possibly led to a shakeup in the Democratic presidential race. So we are looking at an increasingly different polling environment in which it seems as though Elizabeth Warren maybe is moving up in the polls, Bernie Sanders is moving down in the polls, he has also suffered from some recent medical trouble, and of course part of the backdrop of the ongoing controversy regarding President Trump and his conversation with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is the relationship of Joe Biden's son Hunter with not only Burisma, which is a Ukrainian natural gas company, but with any number of international actors. So if you took all of this together, you might be under the impression that the so far robust lead that Joe Biden has had in the Democratic presidential race is beginning to fade. And that seems to be kind of the conventional wisdom. And it's it, it sort of come, a conventional wisdom that comes and goes Every so often, maybe once or twice a month, there will be this narrative re-emerging that Joe Biden really is losing his frontrunner status. I think there are a couple of reasons to doubt that. And in fact, I would give pretty strong odds right now as we speak, as I'm speaking here, hopefully by the time this posts, and I'm hoping that this post is actually going to go up fairly soon after I record it, maybe in the next week or two. Um, so hopefully this won't be dated, and if it was, if it is, um, if you're hearing it, it's not dated, so I've, I've decided to post it in any case. But I would give very strong odds that at this point in the development of the cycle, Joe Biden is overwhelmingly the most likely person to be the Democratic nominee. And there are a couple of reasons why I believe that is the case. First of all, there tends to be a narrative arc to primary fights, and it tends to be the narrative arc to primary fights in both the Republican and the Democratic primary, with a few notable exceptions. And that arc is, there is a frontrunner from very early on, 
a series of challengers, or maybe sometimes one challenger emerges. Uh, this challenger is often hyped by political media for very understandable reasons. Namely, it's boring to write about the same person over and over again. And this challenger is seen as a serious threat, and there's constantly this fear that they are going to interrupt the progress to coronation of the frontrunner. And then we get to actual voting, and the person who we always thought was the frontrunner turns out to win the nomination. So, for example, in George W. Bush versus John McCain in 2000, George W. Bush was the very early frontrunner. He was the one everyone expected to win. John McCain's challenge was seen as unexpectedly spirited. It won a lot of press, but when the votes started to come in very quickly after New Hampshire, George W. Bush won the nomination. On the Democratic side that year, Al Gore was the frontrunner, Bill Bradley was the challenger, and Gore won even more handily than Bush did against John McCain. 2004. It wasn't entirely clear in 2004 who the challenger was going to be, or who the frontrunner was going to be, but the challenger was Howard Dean. Howard Dean was running sort of from the progressive niche, at what at the time was a niche, a niche in the, the Democratic Party. He was talking about how he represented the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party and really was running against the Democratic establishment. But the eventual nominee was John Kerry, who was about as much of a figure of the Democratic establishment as you could possibly be. 2008. Let's talk about 2008 because 2008 is a bit of an outlier. The other outlier is and we'll, we'll come back and talk about that in a second, which is 1992. And both of these outliers are on the Democratic side. Now, on the Republican side, the conventional wisdom was that Rudy Giuliani was the frontrunner early on. And you probably, if you remember back in 2007, I'm hoping that most of my podcast listeners were alive at that point, although uh, some of you may have been young enough that you were not following politics. I swear following politics and teach being a professor of politics, I feel like I get older every year, probably because I do. Um, but if you remember in 2007, Rudy was kind of seen as the front runner, but that was never really the case because Republicans have a very strong next in line tendency that was broken in 2016 because there was no next in line. Um, but it tends to be if you came up short in the the most recent open race for the presidency, you were the Republican person who came second, you get the first opportunity. You get the opportunity to make your case first. So in 1976, Reagan challenges Ford. Ford wins. Reagan becomes the nominee in 1980. In 1980, George H.W. Bush is a challenger to Reagan. He becomes the vice president. He becomes the nominee in 1988. In 1996, Bob Dole, who was one of the primary challengers to George H.W. Bush, becomes the nominee of the Republican Party. In 2000, there's no heir apparent, and so uh, you know there, there was no second in line who was running again. Phil Graham did not run for president in, in 2000, that I can recall. And so George W. Bush got it. But he had the, the pedigree of being the son of a former president, the governor of one of the largest states, etc., etc., and then at 2008, George Bush's challenger from 2000, John McCain, really was the front runner the whole time. His campaign was in bad shape for a while, but he was the person around whom the establishment was going to most naturally coalesce. Right, so the difference, the outlier, comes in 
2008 on the Democratic side, and the other outlier was in 1992, and I will talk about those outliers in a second, but let's just finish updating things. So then in 2012, the Republicans go true to form. Mitt Romney, who came in second in the primaries, who was sort of the main challenger to John McCain, now becomes the establishment favorite. Several people emerge to try to challenge him. None of them succeed. And then in 2016, again, the Democrats are true to form. Hillary Clinton was the odds-on clear establishment favorite in 2016. She also followed the Republican pattern of being the next in line, which is not necessarily as strong or determinative a pattern in Democratic primary politics, but it does matter. And so she was the overwhelming establishment favorite and consensus candidate. And I would imagine now there are probably a number of Democrats running for president who wished that they probably would have challenged Hillary Clinton in 2016. Particularly, I imagine Elizabeth Warren is having some buyer's remorse because she could very easily have derailed Clinton. And if she'd gotten the nomination, I think 2016 would have been her shot, would have been her, her chance to really be the nominee. As is, I think Warren has a decent shot at being the vice presidential nominee, although that's not exactly how I'm expecting things to play out when all is said and done. All right, so that's the history. Now, what about the exceptions? There are two recent exceptions to this rule of the frontrunner at the beginning tends to be the person who gets the nominee. And those two exceptions have really set the pattern for, in democratic politics, have really set the pattern for media narratives. The exception on the Republican side, of course, is Donald Trump. But keep in mind, 2016, there is no heir apparent. There was no sort of person who ever in 2012 consolidated their position as the most well-known, most established challenger to Mitt Romney. And so it was an open field. And it was an open field that was so big that Donald Trump was able to win the nomination, usually with a plurality of Republican votes, because all of the other nominees were so divided and everyone was busy attacking their rivals instead of attacking Trump. So really, in, in terms of all of the other nominees in the system, Trump winning the nomination was a bit of a system failure. It was the fact that essentially nobody attacked him. But on the other hand, Trump actually does follow the front-runner model to a point. And what I mean by that is from the minute Trump jumped in to the primary race in 2016, he led in the polls. And he never stopped leading in the polls, because in a hyper-fragmented race, the person with the most name recognition has an automatic lead. And unless you get a one-on-one -on -one race with that person, it's very hard to work against that. So Trump, in a way, breaks the mold, but in a way actually confirms that the frontrunner tends to get the nomination, because his huge non-political name recognition gave him a huge advantage going in. And really, he, in retrospect, was the frontrunner the whole time. Okay, so let's talk about those two outliers. In 1992, the Democratic primary, there wasn't a clear frontrunner. Um, but I would say if anybody was the frontrunner, it was probably Paul Tsongas, governor from Massachusetts, or maybe Jerry Brown, governor of California. Brown was a liberal from a liberal state, so... He probably represented the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party before Mr. Dean, Governor Dean, made that claim. And then you had Paul Tsongas from Massachusetts, who was basically running as the sort of establishment liberal. He was really at the middle of the party. Bill Clinton was something else. He was young, 
He was seen as charismatic. He was from the South. He was a governor of, a, of an increasingly red state. And he was running on a fairly moderate platform in 1992. And this is kind of important to keep in mind because subsequent history has, I think, changed the way he's perceived. But he was very much perceived as a moderate candidate in the race in 1992. But he's young, he is charismatic, and he's seen as a candidate who represents generational change. He's kind of the Gen X candidate. I know that he was not fully a Gen Xer, but he's sort of seen that way. He's, he's cast in that mold. Okay. The other generational candidate who wins a nomination is in 2008, and that is Barack Obama, who wins the Democratic nomination, running as a generational candidate. He's young, he's charismatic, he's portraying himself as uh, at least a bipartisan centrist, Although I would say he was, he was probably his record did not necessarily match up to that portrayal, but he was certainly not portraying himself as a hard left partisan. Remember, Barack Obama's introduction to popular audiences was his 2004 Democratic Convention speech, which was the, there aren't two Americas, there's one America. One, I don't see a red America or a blue America, I see a red, white, and blue America. I remember watching that speech, actually I was in college at the time, and uh, after it, looking around saying, man, that guy's going to be president, and he's probably going to be president in 2012. And the reason I said 2012 is because in 2008, the conventional wisdom was Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, right? And the other reason that I thought for sure Obama would not be the nominee in 2008 was because he was a first-term senator. He was elected to the Senate in 2004. He would not even have been done with his first term in 2008. And I thought there's no way he will get the nod from the Democratic establishment to run in his first term. Now, I was always a skeptic that Hillary was going to be the nominee. In fact, I remember having a conversation with the... I was involved in the Messiah College Republicans at the time. Full disclosure, I was a Republican in my youth before I became a professor. And, well, before other things happened as well. But we'll save that for the Dr. Nolte Rants About Politics podcast, which is not available on iTunes and you cannot rate and subscribe to it. However, even... I remember having a friendly conversation with the chairman of the Messiah College Democrats because... Back in the crazy days of 2004, you could actually be friends with your counterpart in the other party's political organization on campus. And I remember telling her, Hillary is not going to be the nominee in 2008. She's not good at this, and somebody is go somebody else is going to get the nominee. Now, my thought at the time was that it would probably be one of the Democratic governors. So I was half right and half wrong. Hillary didn't get the nomination. Obama did. Because what I did not understand, and I think you know, it's really revealed in hindsight, is that, again... Although he was not of this generation, Obama was the millennial generational candidate in the same way that Bill Clinton was sort of the Gen X generational candidate. And both of these figures harken back to another figure who was a young, charismatic senator who won the Democratic nomination, and that was John F. Kennedy, who was in many ways the boomer candidate. Okay, so... Those are, I would say, the three biggest exceptions are Kennedy, Clinton, and Obama, and they fall into a different mold, and that mold is the generational candidate. Barring those exceptions, the frontrunner tends to win. Okay, so there are two questions that are related to that. First of all, is there somebody who could come and emerge as the generational candidate and threaten Biden? And the answer is no. Elizabeth Warren is not a generational candidate. Elizabeth Warren is kind of a, a liberal, she's a technocrat, she doesn't have that young, clean-cut, charismatic image. Bernie Sanders, 
<laughs> definitely not. Uh, Bernie Sanders is much more in the Jerry Brown mold or in the Howard Dean mold. He's going to have an influence, certainly, but he's not that generational candidate. Some people say Pete Buttigieg. I would say Mayor Pete is a guy to watch in 2024, assuming Democrats don't win in 2020. So if they lose in 2020, I would say Mayor Pete is probably the most likely candidate to emerge as the Democratic standard bearer in 2024, because I think he's got the ability to be that generational candidate. But he really is too politically inexperienced. You cannot jump from mayor of a relatively small college town in Indiana to running for president when you're 37 years old. I know that the Democratic primary electorate prizes youth, but as I'll discuss in a minute, the core constituency of the Democratic primary electorate is not really into somebody just jumping in as, you know, without having some real experience. And that core constituency is something as a generational candidate that Mayor Pete is going to have to learn how to talk to those folks. And right now he clearly doesn't have it. I think the other person who is interesting, but probably not going to make hay, but again, assuming Democrats don't win in 2024, or alternatively, assuming that Biden wins and only serves one term, which is a realistic possibility. The other person who I could see emerging as sort of a challenger to Buttigieg in four years is Andrew Yang. Yang is really interesting because he represents, he is a technocrat, but he represents a different type of potentially a generational candidate. And that is someone who has picked up on the issues that are driving anxiety in society and who really kind of knows how to approach that and is approaching it from, from more of a sort of rationalistic scientific perspective. So those are the two people who I think we might see again, but I don't think either of them is going to really catch fire at this point. Really what we're looking at from the polling and from the way things break down is a three-way race between Biden, Warren, and Bernie Sanders. And of those three, Biden is the front runner and the other two don't have a clear path to become the generational candidate. Now, what might complicate this scenario? So let's say Bernie Sanders drops out, just for example, or Warren drops out, and you get a one-on-one -on -one between Biden and either Warren or Sanders. That, in theory, could represent a vulnerability for Biden. But here's why I don't think it will. The core constituency to win in a Democratic primary is African-Americans, and particularly, I would say, African-American women. African-American women tend to vote in very high numbers, and you can't win the core primary states without that demographic. So if you want to win the nomination, you have to win the African-American vote, first of all, in the Democratic primary, and really you need to win the votes of African-American women. And of the three candidates that I just mentioned, Biden has the clearest path. Not only was he the vice president of the first African-American president, so there's instant cachet there. But I think Biden also has kind of been playing the game and he provides a degree of stability and security. As compared with their white counterparts, African-American voters are not nearly as ideologically driven. They tend to be more pragmatic. They tend to be more likely to identify as moderate or conservative. They tend to be not driven by the fanatical adherence to the social issues that you see among their white counterparts. And this is supported by polling from Gallup, which has done detailed breakdowns of ideological shifts among various different demographic segments of the Democratic Party. It is also confirmed by breakdowns of the American population done by More in Common, uh, which has done excellent work on what they call hidden tribalism and, and the various different hidden groups within politics. And so Joe Biden is both ideologically positioned best to win the African-American vote of the candidates that are running because he is the least 
abrasive to uh, Democrats who would see themselves as moderate or conservative. And on the other hand, he's also, he has that cachet, he has that emotional appeal as the fact that you know, he was the vice president. He was the person that Barack Obama picked to be his vice president. And as much as someone like Kamala Harris might try to dredge up Biden's position on busing in the 1970s to try to argue that you know, he has an unacceptable racial past, or as much as Biden might awkwardly phrase comments about segregation, uh, segregationist senators, that power, that draw of being the vice president to the first ever black president will create an immense emotional reservoir. And I think Obama nostalgia is a lot stronger among the general Democratic rank and file than everybody who is rushing to chuck Obamacare overboard to go for single payer and to essentially not even mention Obama's name as they're writing against Trump might recognize. So yes, there are certainly millennials in the Democratic coalition who feel like they've been let down by the Obama experience, by the Obama administration. But millennials and younger voters don't vote as much as older voters, and they don't vote as much as... I expect a pretty high African-American turnout, especially in the primaries, and those voters are much more sympathetic to the idea of defending the Obama legacy. So all of that makes me think that Biden is most likely to be the nominee. I also think that notwithstanding the challenges that are raised by his son and by Hunter's dubious connections to foreign actors, I think he's probably the toughest out for Trump. Biden is I think Trump is, t is telegraphing the fact that Biden is the nominee that he's the most worried about by continuously invoking the need for foreign governments to investigate him. And whatever one thinks about the proprieties of that and the proprieties of impeachment and all of those things that are related, the one thing that we can determine from that politically is that Biden is a candidate Trump really doesn't want to face. And I think the reason for that is because Biden's argument is basically going to be, I can restore normality. You know, it, it's sort of... Warren G. Harding's campaign slogan from 1920, the idea of a return to normalcy. That's what Biden promises. And I think Trump on some level has to know that that's a little bit dangerous for him because he, he sort of thrives in the more, the more chaotic elements of politics. And uh, voters like stability. The reason they didn't go for Hillary was because they didn't like her and because she didn't campaign the places that she needed to. Well, Biden's not going to make that mistake. And Biden's not disliked by nearly as many people. And Biden, you know, it's hard for Trump, for example, to, to attack Biden for being old. You know, Trump's only a couple of years younger, right? So the lines of attack for him on, on Sanders and Warren are much clearer. So that's where we stand. There's going to be a lot of analysis about how Biden is slipping between now and the time when the voters actually vote. But I'll buy it when he loses Iowa and when he loses New Hampshire or when somebody else actually, and this is even more critical, when someone else is actually ahead of him in the polls in South Carolina. There's this idea that if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, he's lost the race. But if he comes in second in both and then he wins South Carolina, guess what? He's probably going to be the nominee. Because as you start getting into those bigger, more diverse states, and Iowa and New Hampshire are overwhelmingly white, and their primary electorates on the Democratic side are going to be overwhelmingly dominated by the sort of white progressive element of the base to which everybody except for Biden is catering. So we should expect him to underperform in Iowa and New Hampshire. In my opinion, if he wins one of those, then he's got the nomination because he's going to have such a clear path in the big states. The only way somebody takes him out is if one of his rivals wins both of those two states, then they can start to make the argument from inevitability. But if Biden wins one, or if he comes in second in both, different people win Iowa and New Hampshire and he wins South Carolina, then he's got the nomination, basically, from that point forward. 
because as the states get larger, as the states get more demographically diverse, as you are seeing an electorate that is less easily dominated by the white progressive base, then you're going to see Biden's natural advantages come out more and more. So that's the theory of the race on the Democratic side. I'll make a couple other quick observations just moving forward about some of the second-tier candidates and also Rand. I think Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand have absolutely missed an opportunity in this presidential race, which is that nobody has tried to get to Joe Biden's right. Nobody. And there's kind of been this assumption that Biden defines the right edge of the Democratic primary electorate. And that is absolutely not true. There's 20% of the Democratic electorate that identifies as pro-life. There's something like 50% is open to some restrictions on abortion. There's, you know, not quite a third, but still above a quarter describe themselves as conservative. And if you throw in moderates in that self-description, it's a bigger chunk. So there's actually a lot of room to grow to Biden's right. And Cory Booker is never going to convince any, anyone that he can out-progressive Bernie Sanders. And Kirsten Gillibrand is never going to convince anyone that she can out-feminist Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, the idea that either of these two candidates was going to win by moving left when their profile that they started out with was as sort of moderate, business-friendly, or in, in Booker's case, sort of urban, pro-reform Democrat. You know, that was, that was sort of their brand. The idea that you win by moving away from, from where you started is not really vindicated. And I would say that is a warning to future politicians. If you come in as a moderate, you're never going to be able to convince anyone that you're not. And Booker and Gillibrand, I think, are proof of that. The other thing that I find interesting as I'm watching the Democratic primary race is the degree to which a certain segment of conservatives, and, you know, again, this tends to be really politically plugged in conservatives, like Andrew Yang, not would vote for him. These tend to be conservatives who take the pro-life issue very seriously. And Yang's, essentially Yang's positions on abortion are, you know, read as if he ripped them from the Planned Parenthood website and posted them on his website without really thinking about them a lot. But there's, there's a sort of like, liking for Yang for a couple of reasons. Number one, he likes to talk about ideas. And, you know, people who write and think about politics for a living enjoy other people who like to propose ideas. Number two, Yang seems genuinely interested in ideas and doesn't necessarily come across as hating everybody who doesn't agree with his ideas. That's rare enough in politics that it makes you instantly at least intriguing to the other side. So, you know, I think, I think that's an interesting development. I think Yang outperforming a number of much more established politicians with more established brands is really interesting. Do I think he's going to be the nominee? No. Do I think he has a shot at maybe like third place in New Hampshire? Yeah, he has a shot at third place in New Hampshire. What does that get you moving forward? Well, I think it certainly gets him consideration maybe as a cabinet secretary. I think it gets his ideas a hearing. I think it gets people talking about the, the things that he thinks that we need to be talking about. And that seems to be really what he's interested in. So I think he's interesting to watch. He's also kind of awkwardly bad at politics, but in a way that's not necessarily negative. So when politicians are bad at politics, you know, we, we kind of roll our eyes. But you know, Yang's not a natural politician. He's a businessman. And so I actually think that he should probably lean into it a little bit more. I think one of the greatest political ads ever created was the 2010 Michigan gubernatorial race. Rick Snyder, who later became governor, was the former CEO of Gateway, and he ran an ad called One Tough Nerd. And Yang should, I think, go for something similar. He needs to lean into who he is. That's always good advice for candidates. Don't try to be something you're not. Lean into who and what you are. And I think, you know, he might get a little bit of play if he does that. He might 
not ever get to the point where he's the nominee in this cycle, but I think it's a better strategy than any of the other tacks he might pursue, or than any of the tacks some of the other politicians who are running, who are uh, for whom this is not their first rodeo, are pursuing. All right, I think that's going to just about wrap things up for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on whatever service you are receiving this podcast. Thank you again for listening. And this is Dr. Nolte for Blind Politics, signing off. Mm-hmm.